Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A cruel, calculated and cynical campaign of child murder. That's how the sentencing judge described Lucy Lepi's actions. You have no remorse. There are no mitigating factors. The 33-year-old nurse told she would die in prison for the murder of seven babies and attempted murder of another six. Well, I'll come to the shocking crimes of Lucy Letby in just a moment. They beg obvious and confronting questions about our practice of abortion. When are we horrified by baby killing and when are we not? Now, on that somber note, uh, hello and welcome to the program. Also on the show today, I'll speak with the organiser of the incredibly successful CPAC conference, which was held in Sydney last weekend, the Conservative Political Action Conference. I had the privilege of being there. It was fantastic. Andrew Cooper will join me from Brisbane in just a moment. Also, my favourite Jewish rabbi, Dr. Shimon Cohen, has released a new book on ethics, and I'll speak with him also. And as you might have heard by now, a decision has been handed down by the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal in the legal case brought against me by two LGBTIQA plus drag queens. I'll give you my thoughts on the state of freedom of speech in this country. We'll also talk about the divisive and racist voice proposal. All that and more, don't touch that dial. When is it okay to kill a baby and when is it not? The case of the sadistic baby murderer Lucy Letby has horrified the world. The British nurse who killed seven babies in the neonatal unit of Countess Chester Hospital also tried to kill six others. She is every mother and father's worst nightmare. Her crimes made her one of Britain's worst serial killers and the 33-year-old was sentenced this week to life in prison. She'll probably die there. Let me harm the babies in ways difficult to detect, such as injecting them with air or overfeeding them during a baby killing spree that went throughout 2015 and 2016. Sentencing judge Justice James Goss said there was premeditation, calculation and cunning in her actions. Felt so painfully empty. There was a deep malevolence bordering on sadism. A mother of a girl identified as child one said in a statement read in the court, quote, 
I don't think we will ever get over the fact that our daughter was tortured till she had no fight left in her and everything went through over her short life was deliberately done by someone who was supposed to protect her and help her come home where she belonged, end quote. Now, the sheer horror and outrage civilised people everywhere feel about this case raises an awkward question. Why are babies routinely killed every day in our hospitals, the only difference being the killing happens before birth? In most states of Australia, abortion is now perfectly legal up until the moment of birth, even when there is a healthy mother and a healthy baby. The diagram I'm about to show you demonstrates a dilation and evacuation abortion at 23 weeks, again, perfectly legal here in Australia. If the mother of child one is rightly angry that her baby was tortured to death, what should our response be to what is going on in our hospitals and abortion clinics? Routinely, babies younger than 23 weeks survive premature birth and are cared for in our hospitals and neonatal units and go on to live healthy lives. In other parts of the hospitals, they are killed. Whether babies are big or small, born or unborn, they deserve our protection. There is a bill before this Australian Senate requiring babies born alive after botched abortions. Yes, folks, it happens. The statistics are there. That they, and this bill says that these babies should be given medical care instead of the current practice of being left to die. How is it we recoil in horror at Lucy Letby, but not at the abortion doctors and nurses doing the same thing in our hospitals? After 50 years of abortion culture, this is a difficult question for us to confront as a society. But how long can we believe one thing about a baby after birth and something completely different right up until the moment of birth? This weekend, they flocked to Sydney's Star Event Centre. Always wonderful to be here at CPAC. This conservative political action conference. Critical thinking and constructive discussion. You won't be getting a welcome to country out of me. So anyway, don't expect it, but I... They were standing up for what they described as... Mainstream Aussie values. With ticket prices ranging from $119 to 7000 bucks. more than 2,000 attendees were treated to a small board of opinions on conservative bugbears like The Voice. The polls might be going in our direction, but we cannot get complacent. This generation of Aboriginal Australians are not victims. If you want a voice, learn English. There were musings on gender identity. So now they think a boy can be a girl, no matter what the biology says. They put kitty litter in girls' toilets because some girls want to be cats. Anyone can identify however they want, but the moment you're forcing other people to believe it, we're not in a free society. There was climate change chat. Greta Thunberg told us that we have stolen her dreams. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing with the beginning of mass extinction. And of course, these are all lies. There were thoughts on renewables. They're completely and utterly ineffective. This country has to go nuclear. There was concern for the youth. Sadly, our young people are being hijacked by the left. They can't write. They can't spell. They don't know grammar. They don't fall out of a tree and break their arm. They don't go out shooting rabbits. And of course, the obligatory dig at the other side. Progressive is seen as a virtue, isn't it? I'm a sharp dresser and I'm a progressive. But ultimately, it was a conservative call to arms. What we stand for will lead to us being intimidated and bullied and cancelled, but we won't be silenced.
Well, that was a package put together by none other than the project on Channel 10, which is hardly a safe space for conservatives. Well, joining me now to chat about what was an incredibly successful event last weekend is none other than CPAC Australia founder and executive director, Andrew Cooper. Andrew, welcome to ADHD, ADHTV this morning. Um, Andrew, Channel 10 thought they were slapping you down, uh, slapping all of us as conservatives down, but that was actually a pretty good summary of the event, wasn't it? It's a great promo, Lyle, and thanks very much for the invitation to appear here. But, yeah, it's a great promo. I think I'll be running that on the website. Um, it's funny, isn't it? This is how polarised uh, we've all become, is we can look at the same piece of content and uh, the left will think that uh, they're slapping us down, as you said, and and uh, and we as the promoters will think, well, that's a pretty good summary. That's uh, very energising and motivating. Yeah, it's a shame we are sort of talking past each other, but at least we're able to talk. Um, Andrew, this was only my second CPAC, but uh, I get the sense that a, a movement is building. Uh, you've created a place for the tribes of the centre-right to come together, the, the good Liberals and Nationals, the ones that aren't weak and woke, uh, and the minor parties like One Nation, Family First, activist groups like Advance and Fair Australia. Uh, how hard, Andrew, has it been to get everyone in the same room together? Look, it's, it's, it's actually not that difficult to get people in the room. Uh, what is difficult is to is to just keep a lid on any potential infighting. Mm. Uh, so we have a rule with our speakers, don't make it overtly party political. Uh, if a speaker crosses that rule, we will uh, not invite them again, and we have done that uh, on occasions in the past. Uh, it's tough and it's tempting, right? You know, you're in a room, uh, you know, there's a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred people there of the far, the faithful, the grassroots, and it is tempting to uh, pitch your p particular, you know, party into that room. But we try to avoid that. We try to keep it on the issues and the values that we all share. And one of the benefits of getting everyone else in the room, of course, is then they can start talking to each other. And as long as as long as it's not a highly charged political atmosphere, then then and well, as you well know, it can be uh, quite a lot of good fun. And it just makes it easier to deal with each other uh, back out in the. Uh, back out in the uh, political sphere later on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is so important. It is actually a lot of fun. And it's great to actually meet people to demystify perhaps perceptions we might have about one another. And I want to come to some of those tensions uh, in a moment. But um, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who I think is a hero to all of us, regardless of whether you're in the Liberal Party or not, he gave the keynote address. Uh, here's a taste. And back in the day, the Jesuits had a phrase, genus humanum humanum vivit pouches. I didn't know what it meant. It's Latin, and it was translated for me, the human race lives by a few. And our challenge, each of us, our challenge is to be amongst the few that make a difference, and not just to be amongst the many who go with the flow. Now, Andrew, that's really what CPAC is all about, isn't it? It is. Uh, look, uh, you are amongst those that uh, that want to be activists. You're amongst the politicians and the MPs, uh, the councillors, the state reps, the MLCs that also want to make a difference. Uh, they come because they want to surround themselves with the same sort of people that they are. And what comes out of that, you can see the impact even just on the uh, on the uh, on the on sort of the, the national press in that. Uh, it's a gathering of sort of, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 people, but has an outsized impact uh, on the political, um, you know, publicity, if you like. 
and uh, and we want to grow this. When we get this to five thousand people in a pretty quick time, and I think five thousand highly motivated activists can make a an incredible difference in this country. And it's building a movement. It's building a movement around values. We're not a political party. We're a non-profit organisation with a set of values that will stay with us forever and a day. And uh, any politician uh, on the conservative side uh, that considers themselves a true conservative will warm to those values very much. And uh, certainly the people that attend warm to them greatly. And, uh, you know, our job is to turn each one of those or help them uh, each one of those be, you know, productive activists for the cause. Yeah, it's really essential. We need to have a critical mass of people going against the flow, as Tony Abbott said. Now, you know, on, on those values, uh, while we all broadly are aligned on issues like uh, the voice, uh, climate, small government, the importance of the family, uh, no one at CPAC is confused about the definition of a woman, thankfully. Um, but there are some tensions, as we've mentioned, over political strategy. And uh, Tony Abbott, understandably, made the call for people to uh, express their activism by getting involved in the Liberal Party. Uh, some of us are involved in minor parties on the centre-right because of the failings of the Liberals. What is the average delegate at CPAC to make of these competing themes? Uh, well, actually, uh, Tony Abbott did say he would like people to get involved in the Liberal Party, but whatever party it is. Um, so he did broaden yeah, the umbrella a little that's bit true, there. In fairness, he yeah. said you'll never find a uh, political party that'll be perfect for you, but if you're within the party, it'll be better for it. And his view was that uh, you need to be inside a political party uh, in in order to you know make it better and to mould it, help mould it into what. Uh, uh, you know, what you think the political objective, objective should be. Um, you know, I think that's a pretty good message, to be perfectly honest. It's very easy. I mean, look, I, I started CPAC because I was sick of complaining and not really doing anything, not making a contribution. There's only so many times you can go to a barbecue and complain to your mates over a beer about, you know, the politicians and uh, the state of politics in Australia. At the end of the day, uh, you know, you've got to do something. Mm. And uh, what I'm hoping with CPAC, and I think what Tony was reinforcing is that we're trying to provide an avenue uh, either into one of the political parties or an avenue in which to become an activist to, you know, impact, you know, impact the needle, basically, move the needle uh, in the direction that uh, I think uh, we all we all think it should go. Yeah, no, quite, you can't leave a CPAC conference uh, not inspired to actually go and uh, do something uh, constructive and, and positive. Um, CPAC has had a lot of mud thrown at it over the years, particularly uh, in the early years as you're getting it going. Uh, people like Christina Keneally, I uh, remember her. Uh, she called it as a place that platforms hate speech. Um, um, you and Tony Abbott fell foul of national security laws, which were ironically designed to keep terrorists out of the country. Uh, um, the left have done everything to try and demonise CPAC as a gap gathering of right-wing nut jobs, fringe dwellers, etc. But you had former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, uh, one of Australia's greatest statesmen, in my opinion, giving the um, keynote address or giving the, the address at the gala dinner on Saturday night. Now, you know, he's sort of not the person who's going to hang around um, neo-Nazis and whack jobs, is he? <laughs> got, a, got a visitor there. Live TV. That. That's a... No, look, no, look. And you've been you've been to the conference, uh, Lyle. I mean, this whole thing about neo Nazis and whack jobs and right wing nut jobs, I mean, it's just an absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, there's a thousand solid citizens there that believe in uh, in uh, you know the the sort of foundation stones that uh, made this country what it is. 
Uh, and if that is becoming extreme right or, uh, or um, I don't know, somehow unacceptable, then I think we are in a bit of trouble. And I think, I think probably we all have this sense that we're swinging too far to the left, uh, particularly around some of the cultural issues. Uh, economically, sure, you can see that. Uh, but also the cultural, um, the cultural aspects of society are very much uh, under threat. And uh, John Anderson, I think, epitomises the, uh, the sensible sort of centre-right. And uh, he was very pleased to be invited to speak at the Freedom and Hope Gala dinner, as we call it. Uh, and he delivered a, a terrific address. Uh, and he brings with it, with all his, uh, with his podcasts and his interviews that he does with uh, leaders from around the world, I think he, he, brings, he brings with him a, a certain gravitas now about, uh, about how he, uh, you know, he's always, um, he's always leaning towards being a responsible citizen. Yeah. And he wouldn't have turned up with, at CPAC if he didn't believe that we were intending and are responsible citizens. Yeah, and, that, and that's always been the case. This is always these have always been false allegations designed to try and shut the um, event down. And, and good on you for persevering and, and you know getting to this point. I didn't I didn't see a single protester at last weekend's event. I think they've given up. You've you've made it through. But um, Andrew, what are the? Lyle, I, yeah. I see. Sorry, to interrupt, Lyle, yeah. I, I see the uh, the attacks on us as also, as also almost like a compliment. Yeah, a lot of effort goes into these attacks. They're very coordinated. Uh, and I think uh, what they say to me is that they're scared about where we're going. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Andrew, what are the other tensions running through the conference? And, um, you know, it is important to um, dwell on the, the common ground, but, but you know, it's also good to mention the elephants in the room. And that's the tension between conservatives and libertarians. Uh, I'd be more on the conservative side. You'd probably be more on the libertarian side. But there's lots of crossover, of course. And uh, John Anderson at, at the um, Freedom and Hope dinner, uh, he defined freedom as, as uh, not the freedom to do what one wants, but the freedom to do what one ought to do. And um, that true freedom comes from fulfilling our mutual obligations to our fellow citizens. Can the libertarians at CPAC live with that definition of freedom? I think uh, that definition of freedom can be very easily squeezed into what's called the non-aggression principle uh, that libertarians adhere to. And, And that is that you should be free pretty well to do whatever you want as long as you don't adversely impact others. And, and that can be epitomised in what we were told as kids is the golden rule, uh, which is basically treat others as uh, you would want them to treat you or perhaps do unto others as they do unto you. Uh, so I think uh, these themes, um, whilst worded differently, are very, very consistent. And uh, it was Ronald Reagan that said that in the, uh, in the heart of every conservative beats a libertarian. Uh, you know, th- these are not... These are not inconsistent uh, philosophies. Um, you know, there, there can be, you know, arguments and discussions around uh, the detail and, uh, and uh, libertarians are famously arguing over the minutiae of every detail of uh, libertarianism. So I don't see this as, uh, as being inconsistent at all. I actually see it incredibly consistent. And, um, and uh, what I love about CPAC is that... Uh, Someone like John John Anderson can give a t- keynote address uh, at that Freedom and Hope Gala dinner, and uh, no one bats an eyelid. No one he can say that because you know what, you do get the sense that there's this broad umbrella of people there, and that's part of the attraction. It's not going to a political party event 
where it's stage managed, where it's um, where uh, everyone is expected to toe the line with the narratives. Uh, here, it's all about it's a talk fest, yeah. and uh, and uh, you'll find with forty speakers on stage, Lyle, as you know, you'll find someone that you don't agree with hmm. pretty easily. But that's just all part of the vibe. That's all part of uh, bringing the tribes together, and uh, and I don't think it suffers for it. I think it's actually it's a great benefit. Yeah, look, I agree with that. It's good to have uh, some disagreement there. And, and look, Andrew, as a, as a freedom-loving conservative, I certainly felt very much at home there. Um, CPAC also showcased some exciting new voices on the scene, uh, one of whom is a former colleague of mine, Michelle Pearce, uh, who is now the CEO of the Australian Christian Lobby. Here she is. Nothing new. And my message today at CPAC is that truth cannot be silenced because life itself testifies to the truth. Our chromosomes, the heartbeat of a child within the womb, and even our common mortality, death being the great equaliser, testifies to the truth that we are all equal and we are all subject to the same conditions. Now, Andrew, CPAC's not a Christian conference, but Conservatives and Christians have always been great allies, particularly as the Labor Party has abandoned its working class roots. Uh, how was Michelle Pearce received by your audience, in your view? Uh, the feedback on Michelle has been tremendous. I mean, look, we invited Michelle. You know, Martin of ACL, Martin Niles, was a very uh, well-known and strong personality. Uh, Michelle's just uh, gone into the job, and we thought, you know what, we need to bring Michelle to CPAC because there's a curiosity about this uh, person that's uh, taken over the new role. I think she smashed it out of the park. She absolutely did. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, she, uh, I think there's a, a lot of hope around her fresh kind of, you know, image that she's she's uh, she's generating. And I think uh, the ACL appears to me to be in incredibly good hands as, uh, as her at the helm. Uh, so I'm hoping that... Uh, and I think she will. I'm hoping that she'll come back next year because I felt that she really resonated with, uh, well, with all the crowd, but particularly amongst the Christians with, which were within the crowd. Yeah, fantastic. I agree with you. I think ACL is in very safe hands and it's great to see uh, it very much part of the CPAC family. Um, Andrew, one of the yeah. other stars at CPAC is, of course, uh, just, uh, Senator Jacinta Napajipa-Price. Um, as an Aboriginal woman, her voice is not at all welcomed by those proposing this new voice in the Constitution. The gap is more about place than race. The gap doesn't simply exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. The gap exists between those who live in the cities and those who live in remote and regional Australia. Yeah, you had uh, Jacinta at the first CPAC conference before she was a national figure. You must be very proud to see what she's achieving now. I'm enormously proud of Jacinta. I think everyone who knows would be proud of her. In fact, in fact, Lyle, we had Jacinta at a previous conference series that I used to run uh, some years before that each year uh, called Liberty Fest, which we ran in Brisbane and Perth. And we used to fly Jacinta in from the Alice when she was a town councillor because we see she had, she had such great uh, presence about her and she could articulate difficult uh, concepts around uh, race and violence um, and, uh, and uh, the destruction of family. Uh, particularly in those remote area communities. So I've known Jacinda for six, seven, eight years, I think it is now. 
Uh, and uh, to see her where she is and the journey she's been on is just incredibly inspiring and motivating. And also there is that sense of pride. You know, she's, uh, she's a wonderful person. Uh, she has been under relentless attack through that entire period. Um, and it's, you know, some of these attacks are very hurtful. You won't hear the left talk about these attacks. These attacks are, um, they're vile, some of them, and they're, uh, you know, they're potentially violent, but she shows a, a strength that I think augurs well for her future political career. I do hope that she, um, you know, I do hope this is just the beginning, you know, of her uh, career, not, uh, you know, I think she's got so far to go. And, um, and I think you would uh, share those sentiments uh, that I think we wish her all the best. Absolutely. She's going through a baptism of fire, hardly been in the parliament uh, just over a year, but uh, making a massive difference. Um, just before you go, Andrew, um, Rowan Dean pointed out at the dinner that this time last year at CPAC, Peter Dutton hadn't committed to a position on The Voice. Very soon after CPAC, he did. Uh, what sort of political impact do you think CPAC is, is having and uh, where to for the movement now? Well, I think, um, I think we've been very much in the mix in terms of propagating the argument around uh, the no case. And the reason we do that, it all comes back down to our values. Obviously, uh, equality under the law is one of our foundation stone values within the organisation. Uh, it's written into our constitution. And uh, you can't have equality if uh, the law elevates one uh, particular race over another. I mean, we spend... We've spent, uh, you know, decades, if not centuries, as a as a race, you know, trying to get to equality. And as Thomas Sowell says um, now, that you've got organisations of politicians, he calls them race hustlers. They're now desperately running around trying to seek wedges to reopen the gap between races uh, to create, you know, a sort of a wedge, a divisiveness which they can exploit. And I think uh, with CPAC and Advanced Australia and IPA and other organisations, we're really, we're really resisting that. We don't want that again. As Warren Mundine says, or maybe it was Jacinta actually, uh, but they said, you know, Australia's the, it was Tony Abbott, my apologies, it was Tony Abbott, said that this is the, mo is the least racist country in, in the world yeah. and we need to be proud of it. And uh, I, think it's, I think CPAC's had, made an impact on that. I think we've uh, influenced uh, that conversation. I think uh, the MPs and uh, and the senators that come to the come to CPAC realise that this is the people talking. Um, you know, we put people on stage, but it's the it's the grassroots, the activists, the ones that really care about this nation, are the ones that are giving them the feedback. And last year was very clear. You know, the people do not want the yes case. Last year, the yes was winning in the polls. This year you know, the no case is winning in the polls. And I think we've been a part of that success there. Yeah, you're certainly shaping the debate. Uh, Andrew, you're giving all of us uh, great hope. Many of us who have felt that the uh, relentless march of the left was uh, overwhelming, but uh, there's a great movement that's pushing back and we, we all have a sense that we're part of something bigger than ourselves as you've brought us together. Congratulations on a fantastic weekend. Can't wait to uh, CPAC next year. And uh, thanks, Andrew, for joining us today on ADH TV. It's very kind, Lyle, and thank you for the invitation.
Well, freedom to speak to protect children from the harms of the LGBTIQA plus political movement's drag queen storytime agenda has been upheld in a landmark legal victory. News broke in the mainstream media last weekend that the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal has dismissed a vilification complaint brought by two drag queens against me. In January 2020, I blogged in response to a drag queen storytime event at a Brisbane City Council library. I wrote that the two LGBTIQA plus drag queens were dangerous role models for children. A few months later, I was sued for allegedly committing vilification or hate speech under Queensland's Anti-Discrimination Act. Drag queens Johnny Valkyrie, a woman presenting as a man, and Dwayne Hill, a proud recipient of an award from the porn trade, had demanded that I pay them $20,000, make a public apology, and delete five blog posts. These were blog posts that shone a light on the invasion of the lives of young children by drag queens who are highly sexualized and promote harmful gender fluid ideology. They also demanded that I never criticize them again. I was compelled under the threat of fines to attend two mediations. Each time I politely declined to accede to their demands. They continued the legal action, resulting in a three-day trial in the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal last November. I was defended by Tony Morris, KC and Simon Fisher, who were instructed by the Human Rights Law Alliance, a not-for-profit law firm specialising in protecting freedom of religion and freedom of speech. The drag queens were represented by the LGBTI Legal Service, which is subsidised to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Queensland taxpayer. In his written decision, QCAT member Jeremy Gordon said that I had acted honestly and in good faith in public commentary about drag queen story time and that I had not incited hatred or ridicule, nor had I vilified Valkyrie or Hill because of their gender identity or sexuality. Now, this is a big win for freedom to speak publicly and boldly for the protection of little children from early sexualization and indoctrination into harmful gender fluid concepts promoted by the LGBTIQA political activists and unfortunately, many of our politicians. While this is a great victory, Australians though are still vulnerable to being sued in the way that I was. I will continue to campaign to change Australia's flawed regime of anti-discrimination and so-called anti-vilification laws. No Australian should ever again be dragged through a three-year legal process costing hundreds of thousands of dollars for engaging in important public debate about the welfare of children. In a free society, debate should be met with debate, not taxpayer-funded legal action designed to silence and punish a fellow citizen. I'm indebted to the Human Rights Law Alliance, to Tony Morris KC and Barrister Simon Fisher, who represented me at the trial with, with much of that assistance being provided on a pro bono basis. I'm incredibly grateful to the 1,293 people who donated $208,282 online over the past three years to fund the bulk of my legal defence. Without your support and prayers, and the professionalism of my legal team, I would not have had a hope. Now, most Australians will be shocked to know that the price of freedom of speech in this country is north of 200,000, probably north of $300,000, will cost three years of your life and force you to be subject to hours of cross-examination by a senior counsel in a public trial. This is not the Australia that I grew up in.
To quote the US protest singer Oliver Anthony's Rich Men North of Richmond, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. While my legal nightmare is over for now, it is not over for several other Australians. LGBTIQA plus political activists must now drop all anti-free speech legal action against and persecution of people like my friend, binary spokesman, spokesperson, Kiralee Smith, Hobart City Councillor, Louise Elliott, Women's App founder, Sal Grover, who's in the federal court right now, expelled Liberal, Moira Deeming, Let Women Speak organiser, Angie Jones, academic, Holly Lawford-Smith, stood down children's psychologist, Dr. Gillian Spencer, former Liberal candidate Catherine Dees and sacked Australian Breastfeeding Association councillor Jasmine Sussex. The consequences of the degendering of marriage in law since 2017 have been profound. They have emboldened activists to make use of flawed laws to go after people. Politicians must now act to protect what most Australians thought they could take for granted, and that is the freedom to speak freely about gender, women, girls, and children's rights. Many people have asked me now that I have won, will I be awarded costs? Sadly, the answer to that is no. QCAT is a no-cost jurisdiction. There is no way that I can recover my donors' money and refund them. Anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws favour those bringing the complaint. With taxpayer-subsidised legal help available to LGBTIQA activists, mainstream Australians like you and I are on the back foot. What is desperately needed now is courage from politicians to repeal or amend these anti-discrimination laws so that free speech can be restored to this nation. No more punishment by process. No more suppression of free speech. In Australia, it should not take three years and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak up for the protection of little children. Well, we're going to get a bit philosophical here today, but hang in there with me. Ideas are really important and they have consequences, especially for politics. I first got to know Rabbi Shimon Cohen during my time at Australian Christian Lobby. He has been an ally in so many good causes, particularly during the same-sex marriage campaign back in 2017 when we were fighting to preserve the definition of marriage in law. Sadly, we lost that battle. But apart from being a reliable comrade in the trenches of the culture war, Rabbi Cohen holds a PhD and is an academic. His latest book is A Populism of the Spirit, Further Essays on Politics and universal ethics. Welcome, Shimon, to the show. Well, thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be with, to be on this today. Thank you. Now, uh, Shimon, this book is uh, a sequel to your first book, uh, which was called Politics and Universal Ethics. Uh, it's fair to say we are in a moment of deep polarization and fracture in our politics and culture. You're looking for common ground, aren't you? Well, it's interesting, by the word, the answer is yes, but you might be surprised to hear that common ground does not mean whether we put our positions on the table and the other side puts its positions on the table and we see what overlaps. That's not actually what I mean for common ground. That, would, that term common ground is, is valuable for faith groups who team up together, who certainly have common ground. Mm. But the concept of common ground I have here is a set of values which I believe are native to the human spirit. Call it the conscience, we call it the soul. It's that place in which this 
this innate human compass, moral compass, operates. And the reality is, in my view, that every single human being possesses that, if you like, that spiritual faculty. It's just that the secular culture in which we live has repressed it. Mm. And that it comes in, and that this, but nevertheless, that this innate, I call it, let's say, innate spirituality, innate openness can come out when human beings actually experience some degree of self transcendence, when they are able, let's say, to rise above themselves. Mm. That, 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 that opens up the human spirit. Well, I, th- I think you're right. And, I think you're right on that point because um, it's only a very small minority of people that are actually atheists that deny the transcendent. Um, so, so you're dead right there. It's hardwired into the human psyche. Perhaps um, you know you're, you're of the Jewish faith, so I'm of the Christian faith, but we both believe that uh, men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. So I guess that's why that is so ingrained in uh, people all over the world, regardless of their religious background. That's right. And the and these universal ethics, as I call them, I, it's not just I who call them. This is actually a very ancient tradition known as the Noahide laws, a code which was given, everybody knows Noah, the biblical figure, the ancestor of humanity after the flood. Mm. So these laws were transmitted then to Abraham and from Abraham to Sinai and to the great monotheistic religions. Give give us a couple of examples. um, Sorry to interrupt, Shimon, but give us a couple of examples of those Noahide laws because that'll be a phrase many people are not familiar with. Right. Well, these seven Noahide laws, and if I may later on, I'll just tell you, they've they've received very wide endorsement. But they are, first of all, the belief in a creator, the concept of respect for a creator, the the basic notions of sexual morality, which are focused on the traditional on traditional marriage. They also include the prohibition of killing, the prohibition of theft and material harm. So that's we're getting up to five now. Then then comes six, a a, um, a commandment regarding courts and processes of justice. And finally, the proper treatment of the of animals and of the environment. But it doesn't necessarily doesn't take us to some of the wilder forms of environmentalism which we'd be speaking about. But nevertheless, a basic concern for uh, to, against animal cruelty and against wasteful behaviour. So in all, these are seven universal laws. And if you'd like, at some point, I'd be very pleased to tell you where and how they've been they've, they've been affirmed by major historical world figures today as well as in the past. Mm, mm. So when you talk about... They um, are our common ground. They are our common, they are our, yeah. our common, common denominator values of all the faiths. So this is what you mean by universal ethic. Um, now, yes. know, knowing you as I do, um, this is not some sort of uh, postmodern concept devoid of the idea of objective truth, is it? Definitely not. This has got a pedigree of thousands of years of civilization, documented in our in, in our religious sources, um, and, and 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 emerging time after time. As a matter of fact, even in secular modernity, when you look at the two great Renaissance um, figures who were the founders of modern international law, Hugo Grotius and John Selden, they looked to the note the Noahide laws to as a foundation for universal principles of, of, inter, of international law. So, so, so it's, it's, and, and 
Yes, go ahead. Sorry. So, so um, this is interesting because I think you make a, a compelling case, and, and you're not saying that all religions are the same or anything like this, but you're saying there's these common values, there's this understanding of the transcendent, which you see in Hinduism, in Islam, in Christianity, in Judaism, and Buddhism. So that there's an idea of the spiritual realm. Um, all of those religions have a common idea of, of the family. So that goes back to the point you're making about morality. But fast forward to our modern society, where we're now saying um, there is no transcendent, uh, morality doesn't matter, there is no model of family, mum, dad and the kids is just um, some sort of a social contract. This is way out of line with thousands of years of, of human history and that deep innate knowing that you're talking about. Is that the reason behind your book to try and highlight that contrast uh, between modernity uh, and, uh, and what, what we've known deep down as human creatures for, for forever? Most certainly. And as a matter of fact, I believe the heart of the problem is that the ideology which seems to dominate so many parts of society is one which completely eclipses the human spirit and focuses almost exclusively on the lower dimension of the human personality, which is basically emotion and impulse and seeks its gratification. And the human being, in fact, is much, the essential human being is, is in fact, a much higher faculty and a faculty which is able to arbitrate and adjudicate impulse and to say this is, a, this is an impulse which is acceptable, this is an impulse which is not acceptable. But there is within the human being conscience and a spiritual compass, call it the soul, call it the conscience, whatever, and it emerges from self-transcendence. And that, it, and that is what the human being is. The human being is, is, is both body and soul. Yeah. We're living in a society which says the human being is only body. Yeah. And, 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 and that these impulses demand gratification and they're, yeah. they're wild, they're, so what, what un, they're you'd untutored. Be, what you'd be saying about our modern um, philosophy that, that seems to govern us uh, in this mad moment that we're living through is that it's really an anti-human philosophy, isn't it? I believe it is anti-human, unfortunately, in the sense that it doesn't recognise what the essential human being is. We do have a body, we do have a mind, but above all, we have a soul, we have a conscience. And history is based, is testifies that this is the ultimate aspect of the human being. Maybe the greatest fact of human history is faith. The human being transcends to something greater than him or herself. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important discussion. And um, in, in a moment, we'll give details of where people can get your book and, and go to book launches. But, but just before we, we do that and before I let you go, because our, our time's running short, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, something to do with um, the politics uh, in Israel. Um, I, I can't let you go without getting your thoughts on the Albanese government's decision to refer uh, to land now historically, well, land which was historically occupied by the Ottoman Empire and Jordan. Uh, the Albanese government now is referring to this as occupied Palestinian territories because there are Israeli settlements in this land, which, as I say, was occupied by the Ottomans and the Jordanians uh, prior to uh, the wars there. Um, what's your view on where the Albanese government is taking uh, us in terms of our relationship with Israel? Well, I think, first of all, I, I think that this is actually a typical product of what I call spiritual illiteracy. I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't wish to express any personal antipathy to anybody, but, but this is a, anybody who has a sort of a biblical background, understanding, and this includes actually even the, the, the Islamic world too, and the Quran recognises that the land of Israel was a land which was given by God to the, Jew, to the Jewish people. Now, 
the, the, how these lands actually then were came to be within the uh, domain of Israel is because the, the Israel was attacked repeatedly in a number of wars, and as a result of wars which were which proceeded from self-defense, they moved into those lands which had been biblically promised to them, and not that they took them offensively in the first place anyway. So um, basically, I think what this shows us also is a frameworkless thinking. We have the same issue in the voice. There's no concept of what government is, of what sovereignty is. Uh, somehow, the whole discourse is driven by emotion, turbulent emotion, without any moral or ethical or philosophical framework. It's as though we've excluded framework thinking from our and so, in my view, unfortunately, this is a typical. There's a strong kinship between this also in the voice rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a. Uh, this is this is an example of um, emotion, confused emotion-driven discourse, missing a whole host of historical, moral, and ethical frameworks. Yeah. And I would like to point out also that that when. God gave this land to the Jewish people. He also provided that anybody can dwell within it. It's, you know, in other words, can, can, can dwell within it, Muslims or Christians. It's, it, all that's required is civilized behavior and not, and not terrorism. Yeah. So, um, so I think that this is, a, this, this, is a, this is another case, unfortunately, of sort of confusion and detachment. Well, I'd, I'd even our... go further than that. Uh, I'd say it's a hypocrisy uh, because on one hand, the Albanese government is telling us uh, about this uh, voice, this race-based voice, which is all based on the idea that uh, we as uh, Australians have illegitimately occupied this land. <laughs> uh, and yet um, over there uh, in Israel, they're trying to say that, that the Jewish people have no ancestral ties to the land whilst Aboriginal people here do. It just, it makes no sense. But uh, that's a, that's a big discussion for another day, but I appreciate your insights there. Um, look, we need to tell people where they can um, go to find out uh, about your book. Uh, I know there's a launch coming up in Hobart. I think we've got the details of that uh, will just appear on the screen. Um, uh, that, that's with Senator Erica Betts. Uh, there it is, a Populism of the Spirit book launch, 3rd of September at 7.30pm at the Lead Light Room, Hadley's Orient Hotel in at 39 Murray Street in Hobart. I'd encourage everyone to get along there. I'll put those details up on my Facebook page afterwards. Uh, Shimon, where can people purchase the book online? Well, the, the best way is to go to the um, publisher, Connor Court. I think it's called, Con if, if they Google it, a populism of, this, of the spirit, it will come up yeah. um, on the Connor Court Publish, uh, publishing website, and the best thing, I suppose, is to order it direct from the publisher. Yeah, Connor Court are fantastic publishers, and um, they have a great online service. They're better than Amazon. Uh, go there and, and get a copy of that book. Um, look, uh, I think it's so important that you are reintroducing us, as you said, to framework thinking and uh, helping us understand the true condition uh, of our common humanity. Um, really appreciate you sharing those thoughts uh, today, and I encourage everyone to go out and buy that book. Thanks very much, Rabbi Cohen, for your time. Thank you, Lyle. All the best. Well, before I go, you won't believe this. Well, maybe you will. Henry Pike, the Liberal member for Bowman, based in Brisbane's beautiful Redland Bay, has exposed a shocking example of anti-Australian indoctrination of children. A whistleblower provided Henry a copy of a slide used to teach children at Redland's public school last week. Entitled, 
So how do we refer to non-Indigenous people? The slide said Australians of European and multicultural descent must not be called Australians. Children were told terms like occupier or coloniser must be used instead. Now, good on Henry for exposing this. If the race-based voice to parliament is made permanent in our constitution at the upcoming referendum, slides like this will only be the beginning. Now, one last thing. Don't forget the Family First National Conference next weekend. Former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, Kiralee Smith from Binary, Daniel Wilde from the IPA, a Family First new Victorian Senate candidate, Bernie Finn, and many others will be speaking. Sky News host James McPherson is headlining the conference dinner on Friday night. Get your tickets at familyfirstparty.org.au. Finally, I hope you've had a chance to watch on YouTube Oliver Anthony's powerful protest song, Rich Men North of Richmond. When I checked this week, it had had 34 million views on YouTube. Commentators and activists like me can do our thing, but do you know what really moves people's hearts? Music like this, which captures the soul of people who know that things are not right with our politics, that's the sort of thing that will bring things to a tipping point. I hope this song lights a fire. I'll let Anthony take us out. Until next week, keep speaking up. Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to.